You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going here, I want to tell you about a podcast from Marvel. Yes, Marvel is making podcasts, not just any podcast, Wolverine Podcast, season two of the award-winning scripted podcast, Wolverine, The Lost Trail, is available to binge for free right now. Uh, It picks up where season one left off. Wolverine is headed to New Orleans in search of redemption. She follows a trail of clues through the bayou. He encounters biker gangs, a mutant called Gambit, and a world full of wonders. I don't. Why did they say a mutant named Gambit? I'm. From, I know that Gambit is a mutant. All of the X Men are mutants. Uh, the podcast stars Richard Armitage as Wolverine. Uh, if you want to listen to that and the first season, they're both free in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Wolverine, The Lost Trail. Subscribe now. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky, my co-host. Evan's at the Decatur Book Festival. Oh, he's at the Decatur Book Festival. Yes, he's uh, reading this summer. Cheers to everyone out there at the Decatur Book Festival. Cheers to this week's show. Uh, I'm not sure if listeners uh, have picked up on this, but there's there's uh, almost a spinoff show on the Longform Podcast, which is Aaron interviews people about uh, Silicon Valley and the technology industry in America, and we have another edition. I was actually telling our guest, so our guest is Mike Isaac, and I was telling him, other than like the NFL, which I weirdly don't follow, but like listen to a podcast about the gambling lines on, there's no, there's no just a sugary addiction I have, like a juicy tech scandal story. Oh, you love it. And, um... I think the mother of all, the mother of all scanners is probably Theranos, but uh, in terms of just like ongoing uh, enjoyment of uh, something just catching on fire, uh, nothing really competes with Uber. And uh, Mike Isaac has a new book called Super Pumped. It is about the rise and fall of Travis Kalanick, the CEO and founder of Uber. Um, it's an interesting book because Mike Isaac uh, writes for the New York Times. He's been covering Uber for many years. And in the second half of the book, he becomes something of a character in the book. And I think probably uh, his reporting on uh, Uber actually influenced the fate of this uh, $68 billion plus <laughs> company. So um, it's not like uh, the uh, journalism didn't matter. Certainly not. Uh, well, I'm excited. 
about a uh, another edition of Aaron Goes to Silicon Valley. If uh, if you want to reach people in Silicon Valley, the way you want to do it is with email, an email newsletter. They're hot. They're ascendant. Email newsletters are basically the new Uber. <laughs> and uh, there's no better way to start one than with MailChimp. I was just telling a uh, an older gentleman acquaintance of mine, he said, do you think it would be too hard for me? I said, no, I think you can do it. I said, sir, no. I think you can do it. All right. Here's Aaron with Mike Isaac. Welcome, uh, Mike Isaac. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, we're on the very eve of the release of your book, Super Pumped, <laughs> The Battle for Uber. Uh, I want to get to all of that, but this is the rare book narrative where I feel like the arc of this book probably is like a lot of the arc of your own life because it you've been covering Uber for kind of a while. I feel like I am inextricably linked to this stupid company. <laughs> how did how did you first get into writing about technology? Yeah, so I I was actually a music writer back in the day. I was working at Paste Magazine right as the economy decided to take a dive and and they shuttered the print magazine and essentially got to the Bay Area, went to UC Berkeley and then my first uh writing job out of college was in tech for as an intern at Forbes uh, doing tech writing. And I had never written about technology. It was more like a virtue of being in the Bay Area. If you're going to be a writer and live in San Francisco, that's like how you have to write about it. And that went from Forbes to Wired to All Things D, if you ever have heard of that or remember that. And then uh, eventually to the Times, New York Times. So when you were a music writer, a different <laughs> lifetime, yeah. like... When I was reading the book about Uber, which we'll get to, I was struck by how many weird dynamics there are between the journalist, the company, mm. the industry. Mm. Looking back on your time as a music journalist, like before um, music journalism spent its last dollar, what was your life as a music journalist like? Like what were the relationships with the people who were making it and selling it? Totally. No, I mean... It's probably, I've never had this question asked for me, but it's probably like not too dissimilar to how tech and journalism has operated for some time at least. Like I think the, and this is what I was thinking about as we're in this period now where it's much more oppositional, I think, than it's ever been before. But for a long time, tech has been pretty, I would say like lauded by mainstream press. I've had to look back on my own career and see if there were times where I was not critical enough. And I think that, you know, sometimes music journalism, you can fall into the trap of falling in love with your own subjects or at least just sort of being close to that and have it as part of the whole circle of coverage, you know. So I think we're in this really different time now where there's like a total whiplash around how you cover these tech companies. And, and that really started probably within the last two years. But I would say tech and music journalism was kind of converging, at, at least in, in how people look at it uh, from inside the industry. And you've also had to bring in a lot of politics into the mm. coverage in a space that I think I Casey Newton and I had this discussion. So I'm not. I, I, I'll, I'll credit him with saying it. I might have said it. We discussed it. Um, the idea that science was the origins of the tech story it became a business story, and now it's a politics story. Totally. But to really cover it effectively. You kind of need your hand on all those pulses, not to mention, in the case of this Uber book, some pretty deep international economics that are going on with like Saudi sovereign wealth funds. 
Oh my god! I mean, I totally—I don't know if it was you or Casey that said that, but I totally agree. I Me think, and Casey are right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're both right. I think just from like a practical standpoint, just to get any sort of cred at all in the valley, I think you have to kind of know what you're talking about. And I feel lucky because I'm 34. I grew up kind of foot in, foot out of smartphones, computers, PCs, you know, and was pretty curious as a kid and liked getting into the weeds of how the tech works. And the early days of coverage was more for me about like product thinking and talking with engineers and kind of proved to sources, people who became eventually became sources that like I kind of got it a little bit more. And now that, you know, like I don't write stories on here's the latest, you know, Facebook product or whatever. I, I write like here's the latest Facebook genocide or something deeply messed up that these things are being caused uh, by these companies. And so I think having a foot in all of those worlds has been helpful, you know, and I think what's really difficult now is for folks who are who are realizing that tech is the story and having to come at it from a backwards angle, maybe politics looking backwards into tech. It's hard to really grasp even basic ways of how this stuff works and, and how it shapes discourse or how people take in information. So I don't know. It's a hard thing to cover because it's all kind of mashed up together. I think you have to be like part politico, part techie, part whatever, sociologist or something. Continuing the music uh, tech thing. Yeah. Um, I think there was a stereotype, at least at a certain point in time in music writing, that people who are music writers were people who would have wanted to be musicians <laughs> and seen the writing on the wall. Totally. You know, people who wanted to go to a lot of shows, wanted to immerse themselves in their culture. And when I think back to the early world of, you know, Walt Mossberg interviewing He was one of my old bosses. Oh really? Yeah. 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 Interviewing Steve Jobs, you see two people who are mutually excited yep. about a new thing coming into the world and are in some ways there was a certain like-mindedness there at a certain point in time. Totally. When I read your book, I don't think, wow, Mike um, thinks he could have been Travis Kalanick <laughs> in a different life. <laughs> I don't I don't see that same sort of empathetic yeah. connection between um, the journalists and the people they're covering, which puts you in like a very different place. I'm sort of just wondering, like, where do you stand relative to a venture capitalist like Bill Gurley, who's a huge figure in this book, or a person like Travis Kalanick, who uh, is a celebrity founder, I guess? Yeah. No, I mean, you're totally right. It's If there were a period of tech where it was probably founded on or predicated on like optimism and mm -hmm. looking towards like positivity or whatever, that was probably that era of the past let's say like 15, 20 years before the last few years, right? I am probably more cynical. Like, <laughs> I mean, like I'm probably more like the typical journalist that would be at like City Hall or something, you know, mm -hmm. just sort of like curmudgeonly or cynical or like this is how this could go wrong or, yeah. or how this is like, imagine in political coverage, let's say, like how is this power being used and how are we supposed to sort of reckon with it and, and deal with it? Ideally, that's what a journalist is supposed to do, um, hold power to account. I think that was real, and this is starting to be a more prevalent way of tech journalists sort of covering it, right? Not just me, obviously. And, and so, But I think that's been real whiplash for the industry because they're not used to getting their asses handed to them in coverage a lot of the time you know it's more like what happened to 
the era where I could go be on stage at a conference and like get applause or I would release this thing and, you know, I would be the next Steve Jobs or whatever. It's just not like that. And it happened fairly quickly, I would say, within a period of like two or three years. And I think inside the industry, at least with a lot of the founders and like employees at these companies, they feel really sort of spurned maybe or just this sort of like yo i signed up for this to do good in the world and like forget that i make obscene amounts of money and like have an amazing house or whatever like i'm doing my job and we're trying to do better for the world so why are you hating on us or whatever you know and i think that's just this real big divide we're in and and it's probably going to change at some point maybe like both sides will get to some more like common ground at some point i guess an um, amnesty yeah Tr- I guess. Truth and re- have a quick truth and reconciliation <laughs> committee i was about to say like i was about to make like a hegel reference like synth- synthesis i yeah. guess would be the last one yeah but right now it's just butting heads well a lot of your book takes place during that transitional totally. moment i couldn't put like a date on it but um we're definitely past it now yeah and uh the heyday of tech crunch was definitely before it yep and What's interesting looking back, especially from the perspective of a reporter who was working at a daily newspaper, so you're covering this stuff on the timeline, is as those first wave of, hey, what the hell? Why are you so negative? Stories came out. Little did you, Mike Isaac, know that you only knew the tip of the iceberg (laughs) of how much terrible (laughs) negative shit was coming. Like It was kind of like, hey, why are you hating on me? Uh, like, don't go look in my closet. Absolutely, <laughs> whatever you do, do not look in my closet. Um, yeah. And I think in the book, you effectively sort of capture that moment. And I'm, I'm interested in sort of like, when you know that that moment's there, but you're like, how do I report it? Like, how do I get mm. it into my book? How do I get someone else to say it? Mm. That moment where the venture capitalists, like Bill Gurley, who are themselves pretty aggressive like a cutthroat libertarian totally. um, th- business thinkers look at the founders who they funded and went, whoa, you guys have gone <laughs> too far. Chill out, chill out. This is even a little aggro for me. <laughs> You're playing with fire here. Yep. So I assume that you like kind of knew that that had happened on some sort of a macro level, but this book is made up of a lot of like real things that happened in Victorian mansions in San Francisco and real conversations people have. So when you take like a moment like that turn, how did you think about like capturing that in the stories of these people? Yeah. Um, Well, it's funny because like, so Bill Gurley is one of the main characters in the book. He's like one of the big VCs in the Valley. People like really admire his ability to see potentially big companies and like really the founders behind them. And one of the things that v- uh, one VC told me when I was reporting this book out is like VCs don't really look, they look for companies in a category that they want to be in, but it's really about the person and the founder, right? It's always about the founder because the founder is going to be the one to make or break the whole thing. The founder has to be optimistic in the face of like insurmountable odds. Uh, the founder has to like keep everyone motivated. It's really about whether this person has the gumption to go the extra mile. It's kind of good for journalists in the end because it's like easier to write about people than like strange metallic objects. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. No, no, no. It's like it's very much person driven, and some of the things that we're 
that end up being liabilities have historically been like assets, right? You want people that um, push the limits of what's acceptable and like this word disruption is big in Silicon Valley because you're fighting entrenched industries, interests, incumbents, you know, like in, and in order to do that, you have to break whatever those norms are, right? So you have to find someone, if I'm a VC, I have to find someone that's willing to disrupt the status quo at the same time without, you know, breaking the law or going too hard and getting people to come down and crack down on us. I, th- <laughs> I think in Travis Kalnick, uh, Gurley probably bit off more, more than he can chew or whatever metaphor I want to say. You yeah. got more, more than he bargained for just because Kalanick was this um, serial entrepreneur. He had had two failed company, one failed company, another like middling success of a company. And so Uber was his like third try at building a world changing thing. But the, I guess, asset that eventually ended up coming back and, and hurting him was his just willingness to do whatever, as long as it made the company win, you know, and that later led to hiring people like that and skewed judgment and sort of doing a lot of things that ended up being real liabilities. When you put this together into an overall narrative, did you already have that conclusion about Travis Kalanick and um, like what were models for you of the sort of arc, the human arc that takes place in this book? Yeah, I mean, the you know the book is about Uber, but I I think the larger thing that I'm trying to get at is what founder culture is in the valley, and like I, there's this phrase I use called the cult of the founder, right? And like it's sort of this idea that there's a lot of founder worship in the valley, or like just because the founder did it, they can do no wrong, and like a lot of that's really predicated on the hoodie wearing billionaires and the Mark Zuckerberg, you know, mythology story. And these kids are young and maybe scrappy looking, but they have changed the world and they've only done great things for us. Right. And I think maybe there's a best case scenario in which that might be true. Maybe this founder culture is a good thing. And then Travis really seemed to embody the worst possible version of that. When the founder has all the power, you're unable through the bylaws of the corporation to take that away from him or to actually remove him from his seat and you're left with like a power crazy person who has warped the ideals of what the company is supposed to be and and eventually could take the whole thing down and and others with him basically it's interesting how like like i have a little bit of firsthand experience with silicon valley but have read like 10 million words about it. I'm just like, I'm addicted to reading about the technology industry. It's almost like a guilty pleasure for me to read about startups. I don't know why I'm still doing it (laughs) at this point, but there was a narrative about Mark Zuckerberg that existed not that long ago that the smart thing that he did was keep all the power in his own hands so that these asshole VCs couldn't come in here and ruin the company. Uh, In this case, the VCs in your book are kind of the heroes of the story. Is that fair to say? Weirdly, yeah. It's this sort of weird situation when, you know, I feel like I had a cast of characters that no one is really that lovable, if that Defin- makes sense. Definitely not. Like, <laughs> like, there's, there's, like, it's hard to love anyone, like, when power and money are the main motivators. I would, I would argue it is an inverse of the usual narrative when you're making the money, the money men into the heroes of the book. And, but I think, I think, like, both of those 
storylines are probably not fully true. I think it's probably a continuum of where power should be, you know, and like if you give it all to these like God King, you know, hoodie guys, then you're going to end up with something nightmarish, maybe in the form of Uber. If you give it all to the VCs, maybe it's just like totally uh, nickel and diming everything or like this is, you know, going to turn it into some crappy thing that strips it of of maybe some better version of itself. So it's probably somewhere in the middle, but I wanted to move to the polar opposite end of that, like mythologizing of the founder as a hero. For people who read the New York Times, mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to be shocked by any of the uh, scandals in this book, although the details are more shocking than you remember. <laughs> like, once you put them all together, you're like, whoa, that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot of scandals. <laughs> um, but for you as a reporter, you're a Forbes intern, you're in the Bay Area, you have zero sources at <laughs> <Correct>. the beginning. <laughs> like, how do you even start? Like, because oh, you man. have some, by the end of this book, it seems like you like have sources at every level of Uber, all of these things. And I'm always wondering, like, like how do you get your first source? Mm. So I was like 23, I want to say. I graduated college late because I flunked out due to drugs and partying. But I, where, did, I, where did you go to college? So I flunked out of Arizona State when I was 19, which I consider an accomplishment. And then- uh, I almost uh, just made like a, you can get thrown out of Arizona State for drugs and partying <laughs> joke, but okay. No, no, I mean, somehow I did. Yeah. And then um, went to the Bay Area. My brother was out there and then I did repair work on my grades at uh, College of Marin, which is a community college out there. I'm familiar. Yeah. And then uh, transferred to UC Berkeley and graduated in 2010. So that was when I joined Forbes as an intern. Never written about tech, like never, I didn't know who Kara Swisher was, my boss, who was like a celebrity journalist in the Valley. And I hate saying this, but I really think that getting on Twitter and just being an idiot was like my eventual pathway into like making sources. And I've been doing that for 10 years now, almost 10 years now. Yeah. And like, it has been just, I mean, it's tired to say like, you know, media and Twitter are intertwined or whatever but it really has been like just this like conduit into like talking to a lot of people so how do you go from oh this person follows me on twitter to they're sharing business secrets with it's me it's probably like a dm slide <laughs> or like <laughs> who, some who version sli- of non-sexual who, sli- <laughs> who slides well i think it's really it's a dance right sometimes you can kind of tell uh, or here's what i'll say The thing that's been really important to me over the years is that I'm like fair. And so I I think there are some folks that will just rail on tech companies the whole time and that's their whole thing and that's fine. But like all they want to do is say this company sucks or X thing sucks and this is where I stand on this. I'm, um, whether it's because I'm a Libra or I'm just sort of like weirdly like obsessed with fairness, um, I'll be able to, I just have to point out both sides of whatever, you know, like without getting into the the issues of both sidesism, I still think that like I can cover a company and hit it really hard, but also yeah. be like, well, these are also the other things that they're doing or like try to be at least somewhat less than one-sided on how something works. And I think people respond to that. Like even when I'm beating up Facebook on Twitter or whatever, like the employees that I talk to will, re- will respect that I understand the product or I understand the dynamics of it or I'm able to give them somewhat more of a fair shake on X thing and and know that I'm not just going after as a, a cheap shot, if that makes sense. Well, you've kind of happened into one of the luckiest 
sourcing situations in journalistic history. Has there ever been an industry where the workforce was as angry at the industry itself <laughs> as tech workers are right oh now? God. Well, that's the other sort of, you're exactly right. I think it's without making too many like political Trump illusions, like the best time for sourcing is when people are pissed off and when there's like outrage inside of a company yeah. or inside of a administration or whatever, right? And like when there's knifing backstabbing or whatever going on and so uber was beautiful for that because you know like it, it was 2017 as i get to in the book was just like this nightmare of a year for them it was just like nukes going off every week if not every day and so from there folks just start reaching out or once you know i mean and some of this is basics of journalism like once you establish your beat and cover something it stories just lead to other stories if that makes sense yeah so one scene in the book, I talk about this one story I did and then got a contact, a cold call from a, a source who reached out to me and led to another big story on this um, tool they use called Grayball um, that ended in a Department of Justice investigation. Let's talk about Grayball. <laughs> so I think Grayball is the first point in your book where you enter the story, the me enters yeah, the story. Right. Um, Which I was scared of doing, by the way. But Really? Well, just people can insert themselves in obnoxious ways and mm -hmm. I did not want to be an obnoxious character. It's it's very sparing. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. So could have you conceived of doing the book without putting yourself into it? Well, in the end, I end up inadvertently becoming a player in the story. Um, yeah. Part of how the, and I didn't learn this until like months after the fact, but I was, um, the VCs used the threat of, leaking the story to me to kill Travis to get him out of the company. And so I have to insert myself as like what I'm doing or where I come into it because that ends up affecting Travis's actions and, and pushing him to go even further and off the rails. So it's like a weird dynamic where I'm covering it and then become a part of it. So I think it worked or I think it made sense to introduce myself as a little bit, but I didn't want to become the, the focus because I'm not the focus. How does it feel like in retrospect that you were basically like used as a tool of extortion <laughs> to remove <laughs> oh um, the CEO of a soon to be publicly traded company? It was a, it was weird. It was, <laughs> I mean, like, look, I, I think my whole job is, I think people try to use journalists all the time, right? Like your job is to figure out who's using you and why they're using you and, whether you can do something legitimately without playing into one side or another. And I think that the fact that I didn't willingly go along with their attempts to oust this guy and, and that I only wrote about it after I found out that it was happening or whatever uh, makes me feel better about the whole thing. But like, I never, I think people have to really decide what they're comfortable with and how their reporting is being used, if that makes sense. So that's the second time you appear heavily in the book. Yeah. Grayball is the first time. Yeah. Walk me through how you got the Grayball scoop and what Grayball is. Sure. So I had written this story on Uber's culture. If you remember back when like um, Susan Fowler wrote her blog post and talking about like rampant harassment and issues inside of the company. And so I wrote a story kind of detailing a lot of their culture problems and a source called me. Uh, found my number and called me and said, hey, this is, you did a great job, but I, you need to know about this other thing. So I met with this person um, down south. I 
try to give a little bit of the color in like a shitty pizza parlor <laughs> instead of like a very fancy swank bar or whatever because that's how you get noticed in the valley and so essentially this person told me about you know now it's hard to remember back when uber was illegal to come into cities like just yep. because it's everywhere now but like cities used to like not let uber in right yep. especially uber x if they were not licensed drivers you weren't allowed to go into a city so uber in those cities and i use portland as one of those cases what they would do is send like a strike team of operatives into the city and have them follow people who might work for the police or the transportation department and note specific things so that they could figure out if they were going to sting against uber uh, impound their cars or write them tickets or whatever so if an uber operative was able to figure out oh, this person using the app is a cop or works for the transportation department, they could tag their their app with a little piece of code, which was called Grayball. And so when that person used opened the app and tried to call a car, they were Grayballed and they wouldn't be able to actually call an Uber car or like a fake car would uh, appear and then disappear and it would look like the service was too busy or not. Multiply that out to like, 5, 10, 15, 20 different cops or transportation officials per city in all the cities that they're trying to enter. And they essentially were able to get up and running quickly while like hoodwinking any opposition to them. So this guy tells you about this in the <laughs> shitty pizza parlor <laughs> and you've never heard about it mm. at the time. I don't think anyone's ever heard about it at the time outside of the Uber company, yeah. as far as I know. Yep. And right. you want to publish. Obviously it's a mega mega scoop how do you verify something like that like w there's no triangulation of gray ball so it was yeah it was very hard i had um so the the things that worked in my favor was i had the primary source and then uh, eventually got documents detailing how the program worked um there was an internal wait 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 <laughs> 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 Uh, you, you cannot answer any questions you want. How did you get documents detailing how it all worked? And let me ask you, I'll ask you some sort of general questions so that maybe we can talk around any sourcing issues on it. Sure. Once you have that, you have other sources in Uber. Can you ask those other sources, do you know anything about Grayball? Yep. So that's the that's how you report, basically, is like you need to rely on your existing network once you get a new one. And then like, it's a lot of just like, cold calling your people and being yep. like, hey, do you know about this? Yeah. Oh, you do or oh, you don't? Okay, go to the next person or whatever. And so thankfully, one of my other sources, one of my really good sources was like, okay, yeah, I do know about this. And I was told, or I, I stumbled upon it once. There's an internal wiki actually that detailed how it worked basically so that anyone inside of the company could go access this wiki and, and do it essentially. And then my, so my other source said this was- Is there like a page in that wiki that says like Mike Isaac, don't tell Mike <laughs> Isaac. <laughs> they apparently left that out. <laughs> but it definitely, like the pro, the hard part about reporting a lot of the time too, or reporting responsibly at least, yeah. is like you might get a piece of something from one person, but if you can't like verify it, yeah, you can't run it, right? Or I mean, because you might be wrong or that might be a person- might be off or whatever, you know. Did you have things like that while you're working on this book, like things that you hunted and wanted to get in the book and you just okay. weren't able to yeah. get in? Yeah, there was definitely, I mean, obviously I can't tell you what they are, but there were like one or two 
or probably like two or three things that were pretty rough. Like they're pretty like, oof, that's that would be a good nugget to have in there. But I didn't have enough ground to stand on or like I would go to someone with it. And then, you know, I, I had a fact checker from the New Yorker, Sean Lavery, who's wonderful, um, helped me do all the fact checking. And so we would get pushback from some parties or whatever. So when we didn't feel like we had enough evidence to go on or the other thing too is that like there's so many liars here like you have yep. to be like solid you have to be like pro, nailed pro liars exactly. yeah yeah it's not like it's not like amateur these people are like that also drove me crazy in 2017 when everyone was lying to me i didn't know what the truth was well i mean i'm staring at the cover of the book right now which has a quote from john Kerry rue on it john Kerry rue is the author of bad uh, blood that would be the connection to theranos which is Maybe the the epicenter of lie, the granddaddy oh, of God. all of all lying. It's like that, and that's the the to, big. To difference. Travis's credit, he did actually have a product yes. that he was lying about. That, yeah, that was what I was going to say. Like the 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 difference between Travis and Elizabeth Holmes is that like he didn't wholesale create something out of fiction that he never showed to anyone. Like Uber, for all of its problems, for all of its faults, has changed a lot of how the world operates and you could argue the benefits of that as well as the the negative effects so it's a good product too yeah. like um yeah. Yeah. so you know about gray ball right are you worried when you ask person number two about gray ball that um a memo is going to go up the ladder that's like mike isaac knows about gray ball <laughs> that's totally another like reporting thing too i think that's a thing that any reporter has to juggle when they're doing this stuff is like how many people might know about this? Which sources do I trust the most to talk to about it? Because some, I talk to some people who I like, who I know I trust. Yeah. And then I talk to some who I'm like, oh, they have a big mouth and they're going to talk to someone about this. So I'm not going to bring this to them or whatever, you know? So luckily I had another person who I just trust and have trusted to this day on, on Uber things. And, and they were able to help me corroborate it. But it's definitely... It's like a half puzzle, half detective mystery where you have to figure out who you can trust and talk to. A lot of really weird manipulation of people or people manipulating you, but then also having to figure out who you can trust. You know, it's really it's a very disturbing job. What um, what have been the times when you have gotten burnt by sources before? What, what have your worst experiences working with sources been? Oh, man. There's a group that Uber employees have called an ex uber group or whatever and um i mean it's probably pretty common like a lot of different companies will have x whatever x facebook facebook group or something or x x whatever x slack and so the ex uber group is generally a lot of people talking shit or grumbling or waiting for their equity or wondering like what's happening and so one time i went to someone tried to give them a fair shake a fair heads up on something that i was doing and also asked them about some other reporting questions and they um, immediately left and went to the Uber X Uber group and blasted out that Mike Isaac is looking on into X topic and you should like totally shut up and not talk to him or whatever. So like you can't trust everyone and sometimes you'll just get totally fried by someone who sucks or, <laughs> or who doesn't like you or doesn't believe in what you're doing or might like be too cool lady to to talk to me, if that makes sense, you know, because like. I think the p people who talk to me are the people who even might believe in the company or believe in the product, but also understand that there's a lot of bad things and maybe shedding light on them can help change them. And then the folks who generally don't talk to me are folks who either don't want to get involved or are scared or 
have just are just so all in on this company that talking to a reporter is just heretical. This book is coming out now, September 2019, mm-hmm. and new CEO over at Uber. It's publicly traded. Stock has not done incredibly well. Right. Decent place to stop the story, right? Like, I don't have the strong feeling of like, no, we have to know what happened next. Um, tell me about like, when did you sell this book? When did you write this book? And when did you like lop it off and say like, we're done and we need to get this to press? I assume pretty quickly. Although, also, uh, I'm interested in the like legal reads, like oh, yeah. that component of putting together a book like this. So, I mean, the thing that I they don't tell this is my first books, and and so. Um, the thing they don't tell you is that it's all just like a crapshoot of timing and like what could or couldn't happen. You know, I mean, just last week, one of the characters, Anthony Lewandowski, got indicted on federal charges of theft of trade secrets. Right. And that was something we alluded to in the book and just sort of leave as an open ended question. Like, it's possible that he could face charges or whatever. But like, you're never going to really get the whole story. So I think you just, I just had to decide, okay, what is the most compelling part of this that serves the narrative that I'm trying to to do? Dara, there's like a Travis era of Uber and then there's like the Dara era that we're seeing right now. Dara era is, it's fine. It's sort of like a question mark of can they pull this off and is it going to go well? And like, that's fine to look at. It's just not what I was interested in covering, if that makes sense. It's yeah. just like, it's like, okay, that's a different story. This is more the rise and fall of a founder because of this hubris and and how just like looking at what valley culture can do to a person and a company and the negative effects of that. So I decided to write it. Well, I was talking about writing one in 2014, uh, actually. And then, you know, I was talking to a publisher, talking to an agent, and then I was like, you know what? I don't feel it. I don't know what the story would be. I don't really want to write like a laudatory book on Uber because that's really the only thing I, I could go for an access book and I don't really want to do that and so I didn't and then three years later 2017 the morning after Travis gets ousted I talk my agent calls me I was on an episode of the daily I think I did an episode of the daily like the morning after so it was like news everywhere and my agent was like this is probably a book now <laughs> and I was like okay you're right this is a book and so we ended up selling it that was June we sold it by September and then I wrote it in 2018, for the most part. 2018, it took about a year, a little bit, a little more than a year, and finished it in the beginning of like probably March of 2019. And and by that point, like it was mostly just Dara trying to do this turnaround. A lot of the drama had been pretty much done, and I had just decided, okay, like this is the period that I'm going to do, and I hope everything else doesn't explode or whatever. But like the truth is you really have no idea. Like what if Dar- what if Travis came back to power and Steve Jobs did or whatever in the middle of me writing the book? Like I was, it would suck. It would suck if that happened tomorrow and yeah. whatever. But there's things you just, you can't control. How do you choose what you write about for the New York Times? Did someone assign you Uber or did you just take Uber? So I got there in 2014 and I was... Um, so when I first started writing about tech in 2010, I started mostly on Facebook and Twitter because they were, I, I lucked into it. Forbes didn't have anyone to cover Facebook or Twitter. And I just stuck my hand up as a stupid intern and said, I'll do it. And like, just went and did everything and wrote about them for a long time. And in retrospect, that was a good career choice because Facebook is a big beat and very important. But uh, when I got to the Times in 2014, 
Uh, I got hired to do startups, and the most compelling startup at that point was Uber. It was like, and that back in 2014, that was when um, they were fighting Lyft in New York and like becoming more of a verb rather than just sort of like a nascent idea, you know? Like people were like, oh, we can Uber here. They were yeah. going big here, and people actually started to know what they were. So I don't know if it was the money or the momentum that they had or the fact that Travis was this like asshole figure, you know, at least in the perception of the media that was like a, he was a good character, you know? And like you always, the story is always just like where the good characters are. Is that like when you were writing this book, like tell me about like writing the portrait of the person. What was that like to write? It was really helpful to talk to all the folks around him because everyone that I spoke to was very conflicted about him all all the time because there's a real deep sense of loyalty around Travis. And he was... Like, there's a reason that people still defend him to this day or that folks that worked at Uber and were pushed out because of this holder investigation into the company's culture and then have gone to join him at his new company. There are people that are following him. And it's he does have these qualities of, like, believing in his underlings and, like, really super pumping up his employees and... and, um, this thing in a founder where you have to be the sort of cheerleader slash general to rally the troops the whole time. So folks sort of recognize that and are close to him there, but also are deeply hurt by him. Like he would either like just outright lie to them or like really spin them on what he was doing or what he was trying to do with the company or uh, his control over stock and who would get shares and how much and things like that. So it's it's this real love-hate relationship with him. And he's, I don't want to say like Jekyll and Hyde type thing, but he really was able to keep people close to them, even though when he ultimately, in the end, like didn't trust much of any of the people around him and would put these safeguards in, in order to make sure he was safe. For you, uh, this ties up a seven-year journey? How many How many years have yeah, you been covering Uber? Like probably like five or six. Where does that leave you as a writer? What, <laughs> like, what are you interested in writing about oh now? Oh, God. Now I'm just like, ugh. I do think that I don't think I can write about Uber for much longer. It's just this. The book was like my way of, I mean, I've been thinking about this for five years and then writing the book for two years, you know, promoting it for the next however long. So I'm kind of done with this company. And yeah. now now the next folks can see if they are able to make themselves into the company they want to be and stop losing insane amounts of money or whatever. Um, I do uh, I do still feel like Facebook is something that I'm going to be obsessed with for a while. You know, like we're also in this period, and this is maybe the cynicist turning to optimist in me. Like we're in this period of like tech lash, but also tech is not sort of going away. If anything, it's going to be even more pervasive than ever before. And so I think we have to figure out how we're going to live with it and how we accept it, you know, and like how and the strictures we put on it uh, as opposed to before when it was basically unfettered, do whatever you want as you build these products. And so like a lot of what I would probably be interested in focusing on is just how we grapple with with what our future is going to look like and and if we can build the one we want rather than have this future just sort of plopped upon us by the you know cult-like figures that are at the top of the companies you live in san francisco yeah I so do. you are like immersed in this all the time mm. um 
how does your day-to-day life influence your reporting? Um, are you thinking like mm. all the time? You're you're like a kind of distinctive looking person. We have a certain resemblance. I've described <laughs> myself as a fat Mike Isaac before. <laughs> um, uh, we're both bearded men with shaved heads, but you're like a person I could like look at your Twitter photograph and like spot you on the street oh, in right San on. Francisco. So like, I know, what, the what tattoos is that? are not good for undercover. No, no, your 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 personal opsec is terrible. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I do get you... noticed weirdly. It's actually very, it's funny because like I don't put my image out there on Twitter, but I think I'm on TV and things enough that it's folks who are in tech have started to figure out who I am. So, Well, the Bay Area is not a like mega city. It's not Manhattan. It's not millions it's of people small. to lose yourself in. Yes. Um, what you were describing about like don't go to a fancy restaurant with your source is a very real phenomenon in San Francisco. Someone would see you. Yes. So how do you operate there? And like, I don't know. I think there's something weird about like you've spent most of your life working, covering tech in the tech mecca. Is it hard to draw like a distinction of who you are as a New York Times reporter as opposed to the 99% of people you encounter in San Francisco who work in the industry that you cover? It's really funny. So there's a few things. One, I just remembered like, like when I was reporting this, I had to, people wouldn't agree to meet me in public actually because of the problem that I have of being distinctive looking at least yeah. and, and so I would have to like rent private spaces or like go to places at different times or get like rent a car and oh my god there was just levels of paranoia that like and like the paranoia was not unfounded like Uber was a company that hired ex-CIA and they were NSA doing people. all, like, they all were the doing things all that, that you were worried about them doing they were <laughs> like, doing yeah absolutely like, probably I more to, I was gonna say there's probably shit I don't know about but um did you ever consider like developing a wig game <laughs> growing hair <laughs> getting propitia that would have been a good one um but it definitely influenced how I did my job and and I think now now it's I actually have there is something to be said for tech reporters who live in New York and who don't live in the cities that they live in or whatever and it's nice for me to get out of San Francisco a lot of the time because it gives me perspective on reality and how people think about tech and gives me kind of a gut check on what what is important to normal people if that makes sense and and because like there will be things that make or like a nuke going off in San Francisco that someone in another city might not even like register at all, you know? So I try to get out of here and not just to like coastal cities or New York or whatever. Like my folks, I grew up in Texas. So mm-hmm. like my folks are there. I try to like figure out what people care about that are just not in tech all day, every day. And especially over the last, I would say five to 10 years where San Francisco is like, a monoculture basically now because anyone who can afford to live in San Francisco probably works at a tech company. You were describing like um, people tapping phones, following people, all of this basically like spy craft yeah. that Uber was engaged in. And uh, certainly we've heard like reporting about Facebook engaged in things that are associated with spying usually. And it feels like the overall trajectory of these narratives is towards big tech becoming almost like countries or operating like governments. So how does that change the stakes of what you do, Mm. the tactics of what you do? I mean, when I was a teenager, when we talked about lying, it was the government that was lying. Yeah. Now 
the tech companies are lying. And I think that government, like if you if you talk to, like I've had uh, Cy Hirsch on this program. Oh, cool. And you know he would just say, just always assume that the government is lying. That's a safe assumption to start with, is that any person who's speaking in an official capacity uh, for, in the government probably could be lying. <laughs> um, for you, mm. covering Facebook, covering Uber, sort of realizing that things are moving in this direction, um, what do you do? You know, it's. I think we're, it's funny, if you remember back to 2012, I want to say, is when Snowden um, came out with uh, the document dump. And and that was probably, the over the past 10 years, one of the biggest, like, distrust the government. They're just spying on you. Mm-hmm. It's all bullshit. Like, this, your paranoia is right, blah, blah, blah. And, like, it was this very specific period where um, tech companies were fighting maybe folks would say they were fighting more on the behalf of the user than than the government was, right? And so fast forward to now where Russian operatives are manipulating these companies and using them to to fight giant information wars or whatever and and the government has almost no purview over it really and uh, the companies themselves aren't really doing much and now folks I think are swinging back the other way to say we invite sort of legislation around this. We want the government to have a more active force in this. And I think we're in a really different place now. Like they're, people are trusting the companies maybe less than they, they once would have. But it's it's a strange dynamic where they do act like sort of mega countries or, or even like their own sort of quasi-governments in the decisions that they make. Because every time Facebook comes up with a new rule, it can cut off info wars or a source of information or whatever that has had a very large effect on a large part of the population, right? So I don't know how that's going to get reined in. And I mean, Facebook has long like not wanted to even reckon with that. And I don't think governments have, like our, the U.S. government has even really gotten its head around that. But we're coming to a point where both entities are going to have to at least try to figure out what those rules should be. And I think Facebook is at least sort of acknowledging, uh, just Facebook in in particular, is acknowledging that it will have to create guidelines in conjunction with legislators to figure out what those guidelines are. When I think of, um, you know, the sovereign nation of Facebook, (laughs) my first thought is that all of us, the users, are the subjects, the Mm. citizens. But maybe it's the people who work for tech companies. I mean, in mm. some ways, the the image that really stuck with me in the book and, and what really caused Uber to fall apart was the loss of the confidence of the people working there and the fact that you can't really run a company with thousands of employees around the world if no one believes in you and no one thinks what you're doing is okay. Yep. And... You can kind of like rule by fiat and you can kind of like, hey, if you know, if the growth keeps coming, all this stuff, but we're kind of starting to see the the limits, it seems like to me, of you know, Google has had walkouts. Yep. All of these sort of worker movements within the tech industry are sort of the last check and balance on the industry itself. And I do think that your role as a journalist plays a part in that insofar as one of the powers that workers have within that system, they don't have a ton of powers, is to leak. Yep. Leaking has become the form of dissent. And 
I wonder, like seeing the examples like your book, whether there will be more of a crackdown um, mm. so that something like Grayball doesn't come out. I, so I totally agree with you. I think worker, it's really funny to watch at this particular point in Silicon Valley history where workers are recognizing their own power, right? And they're even creating these sort of quasi unions where they didn't have unions before, you know, and they're recognizing, oh, labor workers, you know, laborers in technology have rights and yep. we can sort of organize and build a movement there. And I mean, it's sort of ironic because that has existed for a very long time, but they're just sort of awakening to that now. And I think that that sort of self-policing is going to help. And maybe people who, I mean, you don't want to, the one thing I sort of mentioned in the book is this like cocktail party test, right? Where you have to show up to a cocktail party and you don't want to be ashamed of saying where you work. Like, and Uber employees couldn't do that because they were persona non grata in the Valley for a period of time. Now it's probably Facebook's turn because there's an icky feeling for some people in saying if you work at Facebook. So I think that people are more vigilant inside now, whether that takes the form of like smacking each other around internally or if things aren't getting done, coming to someone like me or you or whatever and just saying this is happening and it shouldn't don't, be. Don't come to me. <laughs> just come I'll, to me. I'll ignore it. <laughs> Thank you so much for this interview. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to Long Form Podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks to Mike Isaac uh, for taking the time on the eve of the release of his book to come talk to us. Uh, thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Louisa Garbowit. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to the people who make this show possible, MailChimp, Pit Writers, and all of the great sponsors we've had. Um, if you'd like to get in touch, podcast at longform.org. We love to get email. We also love ratings and reviews. Uh, this show is uh, been around, but that doesn't mean that everyone has heard of it. If there's someone in your life who would appreciate this show, maybe a young person who's interested in a career in journalism, let them know. Send them an email. Send them a text message. Uh, we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.